So you have a quarter in your hand. I want you to hold on to it throughout this sermon. I'll tell you what to do with it later on. But in the words of one of my favorite mentors, life is like a coin. You can spend it any way that you want to, but you can only spend it once. Now, in light of what I've been dealing with over the last two or three weeks, back pain and, and whatnot, and praise the Lord, I'm feeling better today. I can somewhat relate to what I'm about to share with you. A few years ago, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Middlestadt, editor of Lydia, then the largest Christian magazine in Europe, published in three languages, German, Romanian, and Hungarian, wrote these words in today's Christian woman. She said, 10 years ago, I spent five hours in a dentist's chair for what was supposed to be a routine dental procedure and was left with a severely damaged nerve in my jaw. And as a result, shooting pain worse than a severe toothache pulsated constantly on the right side of my face. To rid myself of the excruciating pain, I traveled from one doctor to another for six months to no avail. Nobody was able to prescribe something to ease my torment and despair. Finally, a doctor at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota told me, Mrs. Middlestadt, there's nothing more that can be done to repair the damage to relieve your pain. You'll have to live with it. When I returned home to Germany with the news, I felt discouraged and deeply depressed. Medical records show that many people who suffer with the same problem resort to suicide. I, too, felt death was the only escape, but as a Christian, I couldn't believe that was God's will for me. But the constant pain took its toll, and I felt hopeless with nothing left to hang on to. And one day, during my morning walk, I crossed a small bridge near Frankfurt, Germany, looked down at the river flowing below, and I heard a voice say to me, why don't you just jump? But when I looked down at the water, I realized it was too shallow to drown in. Then the voice said, don't worry, it's pretty stony down there, you'll hit your head and die anyway. At that moment, Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 to 7 came to my mind, and I recalled how the devil had unsuccessfully tempted Jesus to jump from the highest point in the temple. So I said, no, I'm not going to jump, I'm going to trust God. I began telling God what I was most afraid of, living in pain. And then I remembered that Jesus says we shouldn't worry about tomorrow, that he gives us strength for one day at a time, and I thought somehow I will make it through the day. And as I looked out over our town and saw the beautiful steepled fairy tale homes with flower-filled window boxes, white picket fences, and clean-swept sidewalks, I realized that behind these perfect facade were thousands of Europeans struggling with the aftermath of two world wars, broken marriages, depression, guilt, loneliness, and crushed hopes. I felt the Lord tell me, Elizabeth, these women are suffering like you are today, and they want to give up. But their pain is different than yours. It's emotional. I no longer felt so alone in my pain, and suddenly I was filled with a desire to encourage those women. And that morning, the vision for a Christian women's magazine in Europe was born. Almost a decade has passed since that day by the bridge. Today, Lydia is printed in three languages and reaches about a million readers. This was a few years ago. 
Its message was, is simple. Hope and encouragement can be found through faith in Christ and in his word. When I receive letters from readers who say, quote, I didn't abort my baby, or I'm naming her Lydia after the magazine, or thank you, this magazine is my only friend, my heart is thrilled. It's been so healing for me. Pain is still my companion, she says, but it's no longer as overwhelming as it once was. When I searched God's word for encouragement and comfort, I came upon Psalm 34, 19, which says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. The words to the left of the comma, she says, describe my circumstances. And the words to the right give me real hope for the future. But I've learned that when we hang on to the comma in the middle, wait in faith on God's promise and offer our pain to him, it is never, ever wasted. Life is like a coin. You can spend it any way you want to, but you can only spend it once. Choosing one thing in life to pursue, one thing that outdistances all the others, possibly the most difficult challenge that you and I face as we look at the innumerable, innumerable possibilities and opportunities that await us every single day. Now, this is a very appropriate consideration as we look ahead at the coming year. As the adrenaline rush of a fresh start and a renewed vision for new projects seems to take hold of us, decisions need to be made. Direction must be determined. Discipline must be maintained. And determination to reach the goal must be applied. God has given each one of us this coin, a coin called life. You can spend it any way you want to, but you can only spend it once. How will you spend it from this day forward? You may be thinking, you know what? I pretty much wasted my coin. I've severely misspent it. Misinvested it. I want to say right now at the outset of this message, forget about how you spent it thus far. What are you going to do from this moment on? That's what I want you to think about today. What are you going to do from this moment on? Because I believe that if the Apostle Paul were here, he couldn't help but tell us how he spent his. He couldn't keep quiet about the inexpressible joy he experienced in his life's pursuit. And it was in the midst of that pursuit, not without pain, mind you, or problems, or major potholes, that he found his true and lasting joy. And friends, if there's anything we need these days, it's to have our joy restored. Amen? Oh, we, how we need joy. And there is only one pursuit that will bring a Christ follower full and true joy, and that is the personal pursuit of becoming like Christ, having Christ formed in you. One of the first truths I learned as a new Christian that profoundly altered my thinking was that trying to get joy out of worldly pursuits will ultimately leave a true disciple of Christ empty inside. Now, if you aren't experiencing joy in your life these days, then I would suggest that you evaluate how you're spending your coin. 
Maybe you're pursuing the wrong things. Maybe you're looking in the wrong direction. Maybe you're in need of a new beginning. Maybe you and I ought to take a long journey through a chapter that majors on the joy of living for Christ. A splash of positive encouragement from the pen of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3. I'd like you to turn there. Ironically, Paul wrote this chapter, indeed the entire letter, while he was imprisoned for his faith. You knew that. Not the most joyful of circumstances. But how could he be so joyful? Because he had a grasp on the fact that true joy is dependent upon his inward relationship with Christ, not on his outward, outward relationship to the world. Paul lived his life as Elizabeth Middlestat described, hanging on to the comma in the middle. Knowing that in this life the afflictions may be many, but in Christ's hands our deliverance is sure. You believe that? Paul had decided how he would spend the coin he had been given. And my question is, have you? Paul had a definitive understanding that the most important thing that you and I will ever pursue in this life is to truly and intimately know the person of Jesus Christ and to keep on pressing forward, keep on pressing on in order to become more and more like him. Is that your perspective right now? Maybe it once was, but somehow you got tripped up. Somehow you kind of drifted off course a little bit. Every single one of us needs to make that personal evaluation. And there's no time like the present. Right now, in this moment, I'd like to ask you to pray with me. Pray that beginning right now, the Holy Spirit would give each one of you and me a new perspective on pressing on for Christ. A hunger and thirst for Jesus. An authentic longing to become and have, to become like and have Christ formed in you. Let's pray. Father, give us a new set of values today that we might love you more deeply Give us a new sense of vigor, a new vitality, that we may follow you more with, and more with more resolve. And Lord, give us a new source of vision that we may see you with increasing clarity in the majesty and power that is wrapped up in the wonder of the name above all names, the only name by which we may be saved. Jesus, amen. Now, for the next two messages, this one and the next one, I would like to suggest that you let the words of Hosea, chapter 6, verse 3, be your unceasing prayer. And here is the verse. So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. Repeat that prayer every single day. Whatever you think of it. So let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. Because I believe that prayer will begin to be answered as you sincerely throw it up to God. And as we immerse ourselves in Philippians chapter 3, 
verses 4 to 21 over the next couple of weeks. Learning that pressing on to perfection, the perfection of Christ-likeness, means that we must adjust our pattern of life. Now, my intent over the next couple of weeks is not necessarily to tease out every last detail of this passage that we're going to look at, but to simply provide you with a framework for you to begin building upon. A pattern to live by, an example to emulate, an objective to strive for. And it's all wrapped up in the multifaceted pattern of Paul's life. Paul the accountant. Paul the athlete. Paul the alien. Look with me at Philippians chapter 3. The first seven verses to begin with. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me and it's a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. That's what we dealt with a few weeks ago. But now look what Paul says. He says, we're not going to put any confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ." Paul doesn't beat around the bush. He quickly gets to the point. In our pursuit of Christian maturity, one of the first principles that we need to adopt is simply this. And here's the beginning of your framework. We need to learn how to leave our past. Learn how to leave your past. We need to develop a new set of values. Look at verses 4 to 7 again. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, he says. Look at what I've done. If anybody else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, look, I can beat you, he says. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. He's got this whole litany of things that are true of him. Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law of Pharisee, I know this law. I follow this law religiously. And as to zeal, passion, persecutor of the church, and as to the righteousness which is in the law, you won't find any blame in me. Now, in contrast to the pattern of the world, followers of Christ, according to verse 3 here, are those who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Is that right? That's what it says. Put no confidence in the flesh. So the first thing about learning how to leave your past that Paul brings out in this text is that we need to recognize that as you pursue Christ-likeness, as I pursue Christ-likeness, our confidence cannot be in ourselves. Your confidence cannot be in yourself. It doesn't matter how good you are, what great things you've done, what family you were born into, or how religious you think you've become. Apart from the grace of God, all of our righteous deeds look to Him as filthy rags. Dirty. 
worthless. See, religiously, Paul was the cream of the crop here in verses 5 and 6. He had the relatives and the roots. He says he was a Jew. He had the birthright. He even knew what tribe he was from, the tribe of Benjamin. He had the respect. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews and a Pharisee. He had the religion, circumcised, blameless as to the law. And he had the reputation. He had zeal beyond compare. He was a persecutor of the church, of Christians to their death even. He had the relatives, respect, religion, and reputation. But what he didn't have was the thing he needed. He didn't have a relationship. He didn't have a relationship with Christ, the resurrected Christ. Oh, he was sincere in his religion, okay, but he was sincerely wrong in his religion. He was using the wrong measuring stick. When comparing himself to man's standards, even religious standards, he excelled above them all. But when he finally understood what the real standard of measurement was, the perfection of Jesus Christ, he knew he didn't and he couldn't measure up. He needed a new set of values. I'll never forget Christmas Eve in 1982, sitting in the living room of my father-in-law, who is now at home with Christ, and he was probing me. He was probing me into my religious standing. I knew what he was trying to do. He was trying to get me to accept Christ, but I was too good for that. I went to church every week. I followed my religion religiously. I didn't need anything. I was okay, and I remember when he broke that all down for me until I was a blubbering idiot on the floor, praying to God to please save my soul. In that instant, I realized that I didn't measure up to the standard because of what religion I was following, and I still don't measure the standard. None of us ever will, not until the day Christ completes what he begins in us. But look at verses 13 and 14 here of chapter 3. Paul knew that. He said, brethren, I don't regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Amen? Pressing on. Now, we don't reach the goal of Christ-likeness until the day he completes in us what he began. But we can be confident that he will complete what he began. Remember we talked about that back in chapter 1, verse 6, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He's going to finish it. We can count on that. So we need to recognize that as we pursue Christ's likeness, we cannot put any confidence in ourselves. But the, sec- the flip side of that coin is that you need to recognize that as you pursue Christ's likeness, your confidence must be in Christ and in Him alone. As Paul started doing the math here, he realized that all the things he once thought were assets to his standing with God ended up being actual losses. In fact, they didn't count for much at all. 
In fact, in verse 8, he puts a name on what he considered his assets to be. Now, depending upon your version of the Bible, words like rubbish, dung, or even excrement may be used. Look at verse 8. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but... What does your Bible say? Say it. <laughs> Rubbish, garbage, refuse, excrement, so that I may gain Christ. See, all these words in our translations, they're a tad polite. They really don't capture the depth of what Paul is feeling here. Literally, it's an S word. The word is skubala. A very difficult word in the Greek to translate. It's really a word you see on bumper stickers. Skubala happens. That's what that word is. Now, I don't want to paint a bad picture in your mind, but the scriptures are real and they're raw. Friends, anything that would keep him, Paul, from growing more intimate with Christ, no matter how good it might otherwise be to Paul, was skubala. If, what if it were the same for you and me? Can you imagine what your life and my life might be like if we considered everything that way? You do the math. Where's your confidence today? What are you putting your confidence in? Is it in the fact that you were born into a Christian family? That your dad was a pastor or that he was a missionary or that your mom was a women's ministry leader? Or is it that you've not missed a single Sunday service in the last five years? You put your confidence in that? Are you basing your spiritual maturity on how many people you've led to Christ or how much biblical knowledge you've attained through studying the Bible? Or is your bottom line confidence in the fact that you know Jesus intimately and that he knows you? It's interesting to me that as Paul grew more mature in Christ, the less confident he became in himself. You ever notice that as you read your scriptures? I think he epitomized John the Baptist's statement that he, Christ, must increase and I must decrease. Paul wrote 13 letters in the New Testament. In 48, 49 AD in Galatians, the first book that he wrote, he opened with these words, Paul, an apostle. Six years later, he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9, but I am the least of the apostles who am not fit to be called an apostle. Five years after that, from a prison cell in Rome, he referred to himself as the very least of all the saints in Ephesians 3.8. Two years after that, in one of his last letters, Paul wrote that he recognized himself to be the chief of all sinners. See that progression? Downward. Note the pattern. The closer we get to God in intimacy, the more we begin to understand his holiness and purity, the more we recognize ourselves to be in our own humanity 
to be people who fall, fall far, far short of God's glory. And we don't measure up. See, Paul didn't get worse as he got closer to Christ. He got more aware of who he was. Paul had to learn how to leave his past. That didn't mean he abandoned his spiritual heritage, biblical knowledge, or his personal zeal. No, he just realized that they weren't the central issue in the grand scheme of things. The central issue was the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ. Everything else pales to that. The credentials that he once thought were the most important things in his life faded into oblivion in comparison to one thing, that surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. This is an Old Testament example of this too. After God called Moses to a very serious and dangerous mission to confront the king of Egypt and demand that he free the people of Israel. You want that job? Go confront ISIS. Tell them to free all the Christians. God asked Moses a very curious question when God was giving him, after he gave him that charge. In Exodus chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, we read these words. Then the Lord said to him, Moses, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. And Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. And the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake and turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. What's that in your hand, Moses? A staff? Your staff? Throw it down. God told Moses to throw down his staff. What's going on here, you're thinking? Well, Mark Batterson observes this. He says, a shepherd's staff was a six-foot-long wooden rod that was curved at one end. It functioned as a walking stick, a weapon and a prod used to guide the flock. Moses never left home without his staff. That staff symbolized Moses' security. It offered him physical security from wild animals. It provided his financial security. His sheep were his financial portfolio, right? But the staff was more than just a form of security. The staff was also part of Moses' identity. When Moses looked in the mirror, he saw a shepherd. Nothing more, nothing less. And I think that's why Moses asked God to send somebody else to do the job. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, Moses said to God, and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And I love the way God answers this question by changing the focus. God says, I will be with you. That doesn't really seem like an answer to Moses' question, does it? But I think it was God's way of saying, who you are isn't the issue, Moses. The issue is whose you are and who I am. Has God ever called you to throw something down? Something in which you find your security or put your identity? It's awfully hard to let go, isn't it? 
isn't it? Feels like you're jeopardizing your future. Feels like you could lose what is most important to you. But that is when you truly discover who you really are. I think there's a third thing here that that staff stood for too. And you don't see it readily in that text. I think it stood, stands for ability as well. Because later on, that miracle-working staff that God had Moses carry with him every place he did the miracles became a stumbling block to Moses. Later on in Numbers chapter 20, verses 6 to 12, 37 years after they've wandered through the wilderness and God performed all these miracles through Moses and his staff was part of it all, they complained about not having water. God said to Moses, speak to the rock, bring forth water. And Moses hit the rock with the staff and said, you want us to bring forth water for you? And you know what that did? That stopped Moses from going into the promised land. What happened? That staff that was the rod of God had become a stumbling block to Moses because he took it on as his own ability and his own authority. And I think God says, throw that down. What's in your hand, Moses? Throw it down. Let it go. What's in your hand, Paul? All your credentials? Throw them down. Let them go. Consider it as loss. What's in your hand? You fill your name in the blank. Throw it down. See, I agonize with you. Because I know how tough it is to throw down a staff, just like you do. It was so hard to throw down my dream of being a musician. It was so hard to leave the security of friends and family in a secure job, become a full-time Bible college student, and then in my youth, in inexperience, pastor a church out in the middle of RFD nowhere, Maine. But as Mark Batterson put it again, the only way you discover a new identity is to let the old one go. And the only way you'll find your security in Christ is by throwing down the human securities we tend to cling to. But be careful. Don't let your ability that God gives you after that become a stumbling block to you. Always remember to throw down that staff. There's a branch of history called counterfactual theory that asks the what-if questions. So, so one pastor asks this question. He says, so here's my counterfactual question. What if Moses had held on to his staff? I think the answer is simple. The shepherd's staff would have remained a shepherd's staff, right? I don't think God would have used Moses to deliver Israel. I think Moses would have gone right back to shepherding his flock. The old routine. Same old, same old. Folks, if you're not willing to throw down your staff, you're going to forfeit the miracle at your fingertips. And I've seen so many people do it. You get the call of God on their life. They're passionate. They know it. And they stop short of it. You see, 
You gotta be willing to let go of an old identity in order to take on a new identity, new security, new ability. And that's what happens to Moses. This is a miracle of transformation, not just the staff turning into a snake, but a shepherd of sheep turning into a leader of a nation. Moses had to throw down that shepherd's staff in order for it to be transformed into the rod of God. And as far as we know, this is the first miracle that Moses ever experienced. If Moses had held on to that staff, he would have forfeited all the miracles after that. Let me ask you a question. Where do you find your identity? Where is your security? Whose ability are you counting on? Moses would have spent the rest of his life counting sheep. What are you going to do? What's the source of your security? Is it a title, a paycheck, a job, a relationship, a degree, a name? There is nothing wrong with any of those things as long as you can throw them down and let them go. If you find your security outside of Christ, then you are banking on false security. If you have a false sense of identity, as long as you hold on to that staff, you will never know what you could have accomplished for God with his help. And let me remind you of this. Your success is not contingent upon what's in your hand. Your success is contingent upon whether God extends his hand on your behalf. That's the issue going on with Paul here in Philippians 3. If he's going to know Christ and all that that entailed, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, if he was going to attain to the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, he had to let go of his false security and all that once comprised his self-proclaimed identity. He had to throw down his staff. And so do you. And so do I. Let me ask you a question. What is the central issue for you at this moment in your life? What is it? What is it really? Can you honestly say that you value a growing intimacy with Jesus Christ more than anything else in your world? Would you be willing to suffer significant loss in your life right now if that's what it took to know Christ better? You know, I don't know if any of us could answer that question so quickly. I don't expect you to. Because it means adopting a whole new set of values in this life. It means changing the way we live from this point on. It takes not only confidence in Christ, but a commitment to him beyond what we believe that we can even give. You know what the term is? The term surrender. Surrender. And so it's not enough to simply learn to leave the past. You've got to go beyond that. You need to learn how to live in the present. How to live in the present. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ." and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. 
that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already attained, obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was also laid hold of by Christ Jesus. See what he's saying? And brethren, I don't regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, I press forward to what lies ahead and press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We need a new sense of vigor and vitality. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says it like this. So, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he's done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. This is your reasonable service, your spiritual worship. Are you willing? Are you willing to lose all or even anything for the person of Jesus Christ. See, the great missionary Jim Elliot's words echo the thought of this passage right here I just read. Elliot said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It's extremely difficult to sit in your chair and say, okay, Pastor Rust, let's go. I'm ready. I'm ready to give it all up for Christ. I'm not that naive to think that anyone would actually do that. Although through the power of the Spirit of God, people do it all the time. In fact, without first counting the cost of that, would it, it, what that would entail for you, it would be utterly disastrous. Jesus distinctly warned us in Luke 14 to count the cost of what it means to follow him. And even then, he may not ask us to abandon everything, but he definitely asks us to be willing to whenever he calls us to. But I found that it's not always the giving up of all that trips up people. It's the handing over the one specific thing that's holding you back. The one thing. Not the all things. It's the one thing. I want to ask you this morning to stop and consider one thing. One thing in your life right now that you know Christ would have you give up in order to know him better. Because we all have one. At least one. One thing that you would have to get up, give up in order to live more in sync with his will, to grow deeper in your soul with Christ. Every single one of our lives, I am certain in every single one of our lives, he is calling us to give something over to him. One thing. What is the one thing that you are tenaciously holding on to, unwilling to let go of for Christ's sake? That's what I want you to think about. Because I'm going to issue you a challenge this morning. I want you to throw down, well, no, I don't want you to. 
God wants you to throw down your staff, whatever that is. I'm going to ask something of you in a few moments. Because God's asking you, what's in your hand? What's in your hand? As a response to Christ's call to deeper intimacy with him, I want you to take this coin that you were given. The one that you've been holding on to throughout this whole message that turning it over and over in your hands, causing them to sweat. And I want you to identify this coin with the one thing in your life that you know is keeping you from a deeper intimacy with Jesus. And as the ushers come around, I want to ask you to prayerfully place this coin in the basket as a tangible act symbolizing your willingness to com and commitment to give that one thing you've identified over to Christ for his sake. And as you give that coin, I want you to quietly pray something like this. Okay, just close your eyes and, and listen to this prayer. Pray in your own words, but it might sound something like this. Lord, this is hard. I want to let this one thing go, but I need your help to pull it off. By faith, I count this as scubala in order that I may know you better. I suffer this loss in view of the surpassing knowledge, value of knowing you, Jesus, as Lord over this area of my life. I place no confidence in myself or in my so-called abilities, but rather I trust you. I trust in you. And I want to go further and deeper in my life with you. I'm going to leave that prayer on the screen in case you need some help. But I'm going to ask you, would you do that when the ushers come around? So maybe there's some little habit that God wants you to give up. Would you be willing to do it? Maybe there's a relationship that you know is not quite right that you're engaged in that he wants you to sever. Would you do it? Maybe there's a control issue that he wants you to let go of and you like being in control. Would you let it go in order to better understand what Jesus went through when he veiled his sovereignty and submitted himself to death on the cross for you? Listen, friends, there's at least one area that Jesus wants us to turn over to him. It may be an attitude or an appetite or some activity, and only two people in this life know, who, know what it is, you and God. And as long as you and I refuse to give up, you know what we forfeit? We forfeit the opportunity to know him that much better. In essence, until we do, we cannot truthfully say what Paul says in verses 8 to 11 that I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count that but rubbish that I may gain Christ, that I may be found in him, that I may know him 
that I may find my righteousness, which is based on faith in him. That I might know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, that I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. Now, please don't do this without meaning it. If you're not sincere, keep the quarter. It's on the house. Your life will be 25 cents richer. But here's the rub. I'm going to put this image in your mind right now, just like Jesus did to Peter when he said, you know, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. And every day after that, when he heard the cock crow, he remembered that. Every time you spend the quarter you keep at the store, every time you reach into your pocket and feel that coin that you failed to put in the basket, it's going to be a reminder of the choice that you made today to hold on to that one thing that you thought was so stinking important. So I'm going to ask the ushers now to come and collect those coins. Pray the prayer, if you mean it, and put the coin in the basket.